0: Well, if you ever find yourself uh, discouraged or depressed, maybe a little grumpy because you lost an hour of sleep, right? And you're looking for a little, just a little more joy in your life and you can't afford therapy or medication or those things. Let me just offer you something that's free, that's incredibly profitable. Uh, Just Google the term, stupid selfies, right? right. And there's just some incredible gems that come up if you Google that term. So, for example, here's a few of those gems we pulled off the old interwebs. This is what's known as the Scotch tape selfie. Is that not glorious? That's got a little Silence of the Lambs feel to it, does it not? And so I could just see the guy there on the right, Clarice, right? So that's just creepy. And then also we have the obligatory animal selfie. So, this lady thought she could be really cool. And look at that, what a beautiful animal this giraffe is. Rawr! Bites her head off, right? So you have that, and then uh, my personal favorite, which is a senior adult selfie. How great is that? Is this thing working, right? How great. Is that? How many of you have ever taken a selfie and it looked like that at the end of it, right? Yeah, some of you have, and you won't admit it. You're a liar. All right, and then lastly, we have the. I don't. I don't, I don't have a caption for that one. What a great intro into the Word of God. Amen. All right. Well, hey, uh, just to be clear, if you were in any of those pictures, uh, we were not laughing with you. We were laughing at you. I just want to share that uh, openness, right? And so while selfies can be an innocent source of fun, uh, they can also reveal a much deeper heart issue rooted in uh, self-promotion or uh, self-absorption. Selfies and more accurately, the likes and comments uh, that are, can be a source of self-worth. And so obviously, uh, selfies... And of themselves are not uh, sinful, but they may not be actually a picture of our faces. They may be a picture of our hearts. And so when studying for the teaching we did on marriage for the last few weeks, I came across a well-known Bible teacher and someone asked him the question, they said, hey, what do I look for in a potential spouse? And he made this uh, insightful comment in, in our selfie culture. He said this, he said, be careful about marrying someone who puts lots of selfies out on social media. In other words, look for a person who's selfless, not self absorbed or self promoting. To use biblical language, uh, look for a person who esteems others better than themselves. That's what the Bible calls us to do as followers of Jesus Christ. And so, in, in spite of our culture going through a decades long movement known as the self esteem movement, Scripture says that the path to spiritual maturity is actually found in self-denial. Uh, Paul started that theme in, in chapter 8 last week. He said, hey, if you're going to love the people around you well, uh, they're, you're going to find some people who have different conscience than you, the weaker brother. And so if you want to love them well, you're going to have to lay aside uh, some of your Christian liberties. You're going to have to self-deny to love them well. And then he continues that theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, not only do you have to practice self-denial to love other Christians well, you've got to practice self-denial if you want to love the world well and reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So you have a Bible, a phone, or tablet. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for a message titled, Self-Denial in a Selfie Society. And I'm very proud of that title. I thought that all by myself, all right? And uh, so Paul's saying, hey, basically, listen, not only do you have to practice self-denial, chapter 8, if you want to love the people around you well and and, and lay aside your Christian liberties and deny yourself those liberties, he said, you've got to practice self-denial if you want to be an effective missionary. And, and you may hear that may think, oh, well, good, because I'm not a missionary, so I'm not signing up for all that self-denial. That doesn't sound like a tremendous amount of fun, and I'm not a missionary, so I'm totally exempt. Listen, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, um, mark it down, you are a missionary. You're a missionary cleverly disguised as an educator. You're a missionary cleverly disguised as an employee of GE or Procter & Gamble. You're a missionary cleverly disguised as an engineer. You're a missionary cleverly disguised as a high school student, as a stay-at-home mom, as a grandparent. You are a missionary. And so the reality is not, are we missionaries? The question is, am I living my life in an intentional way so that I can be used of God to spread the fame of Jesus Christ, and so there's no one who's better to learn that from than the Apostle Paul when it comes to this missional living. If you're like me, this is an area that you need to grow in, and so we're going to learn from this today, and I pray that we use this to be on mission for Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to look at verse 19 down through verse 27 this morning. So beginning in verse 19, uh, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words, He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become All things, is a very familiar passage in Christian circles. I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. Verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. Some of your translations would say self-controlled. Temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become Disqualified. Now, since we're dropping down into verse 19 in chapter 9, we kind of skipped over a big chunk of verses. Let me tell you uh, what we jumped over in verses 1 through 14. Paul is making the argument that says, Hey, those who labor in the gospel should make their living from gospel ministry. And he's saying, hey, I'm an apostle, and so uh, for you to pay me for my work of church planning and ministry, it will be totally appropriate. However, in Paul's context, Paul said, hey, under the banner of my rights, I I think this is a better option to lay aside this payment so that uh, I don't be a hindrance to the gospel in his context. Now, a lot of people have taught, uh, verses 1 through 14, They've taught that and said, here's the reason you should pay pastors. Here's why you should pay missionaries. Here's why you should pay people involved in Christian ministry. And you can certainly build that case easily from verses 1 through 14. However, this is not a passage about paying Christian workers. That whole thing, verses 1 through 14, is an illustration of Paul's life to the greater meaning of chapter 8 and chapter 9, which is living a life of self-denial. Now, if you're like me, let me just let you a little secret. That's hard. You know why? I'm a big fan of me, and so are you. I I like to engineer circumstances and environments and relationships for the outcome that serves me best. And so this idea that I'm gonna live a life of self-denial so that I can serve Jesus does not come easily or naturally for me. It requires the supernatural work of God in me because left to myself, I'm a self-promoter, self-indulgent, self-absorbent person, and so are you. And so Paul said, hey, This work of being on mission, this is a supernatural uh, work of God. And uh, Paul's illustrating that with his life of what it looks like to live a life of self-denial. So I want to walk us through two principles this morning found in this passage about what does it look like to position your life to make the greatest impact possible for Jesus Christ? What is it required to live on mission for his Glories, two things in this passage you want to see that's illustrating the life of Paul. Number one, you have to be willing to minimize your rights in order to maximize your ministry. In chapter nine, Paul presses further this option of refraining one's rights by illustrating it from his own life. And Paul said, "Hey, there's all kinds of things that I'm entitled to, rights I have as an apostle of Jesus Christ." There's all kinds of uh, rights I have as a citizen of Rome. However, I'm willing to lay aside those rights if, in fact, they get in the way of reaching people for Christ. I'm willing to minimize my rights in an effort to maximize my ministry. And there's no question what Paul's motive is in all of this. Uh, Go back to verse 19. What's he say uh, in chapter 9, verse 19? For though I'm free from all men, I have made myself a servant did you see that word made you know what that means it requires intentional effort on his part I'm gonna let you in a little secret the natural drift of your heart is not to be a servant of other people the natural drift of your heart is to be served and if you don't agree with that you've never had kids amen like they live to be served right And so that's where all of our hearts are pointed in that direction. So Paul said, I have made myself, I have worked myself into a place of self-denial. Why? What's he say at the end of verse 19? In verse 19, that I might win the more. What's he say in verse twenty? And to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Now, does it mean he ascribed? To, uh, he denied Christ as the risen Savior and all those things that Judas. He said, "No, no." He said, "I'm just very aware of all their customs and their feasts, and I and I go out of my way to deny my freedom in Christ and lay aside my rights as an apostle, so that I don't unnecessarily offend them, so that I might win them for Christ." What's he say? Keep going in verse twenty-one. He says that I might gain them that are without the law. Who's that? That's the Gentiles. He says, when I'm around Jewish people who don't know Christ, I lay aside my rights as an apostle and a Roman citizen. Why? So that I can win them to Christ. When I'm around Gentiles, verse 21, I do the same thing. When I'm around weak people, I don't exploit my strengths. I do the same thing. What's verse 22? That I might gain the weak. Paul had one motive in his life it was not self-promotion it was not self-absorption it was not self-indulgence it was not self-preservation it was to deny himself for the sake of living on mission for Jesus Christ and that's hard in our culture it is hard in a selfie saturated society but every situation Paul encountered every resource he possessed every relationship he built he was constantly asking the question what would it look like to turn the focus off of me and onto Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that in a selfie society? Where we live our life based on the likes and comments that we get sometimes on our social media. To live in such a way that says, you know what? What would it look like to take whatever platform I have and turn the focus off of me and onto Jesus Christ? That's exactly how Paul lived. Why? So that he could win people to Christ. That's it. That's it. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Amen. You cannot actively build your kingdom and at the same time participate in Jesus' kingdom building call on your life. You cannot build your kingdom and at the same time build Jesus' kingdom. Those are contrary, mutually exclusive things. and One of the most difficult things to lay down, to pick up a town, a basin, to serve Jesus faithfully is your rights. And I think that's the most difficult aspects of American Christianity, where American Christianity and biblical Christianity often clash. Listen, biblical Christianity is about laying aside my rights, denying myself. And in America, listen, we live in a country that's governed by a bill of rights. Uh, We have founding documents that says, hey, as those created in the image of God, we have uh, certain unalienable rights that all of us, and so how do I reconcile all those rights I've been given as a citizen of this great country and, and at the same time, Paul's saying lay aside rights. Paul says, hey, any time that these rights forfeit you an opportunity to share Christ with someone else, you should willingly and quickly lay those aside. That's what he's modeling here. Paul understood the struggle. Look at verse 19 one more time. In verse 19 he says, for though I'm free from all men. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not a slave, so I've got, I've got rights He's saying, "I'm not like these people." You could actually uh, purchase citizenship in Rome, and some people would do that because it granted them incredible access and privilege you wouldn't have. Uh, however, those who purchased their citizenship did not have the full rights of those who were natural-born citizens. So Paul's saying, "Hey, I'm not like these other people. I've got all the rights of a full Roman citizen. Not only that, I'm an apostle." And so Paul's got all the rights. And what's he do with them? He says, whatever whatever those rights are, I'll lay them aside so that I can win people to Jesus Christ. Paul gladly becomes a servant to all so that he might win all those people. He said, hey, if it's a Jew, I, I, I recognize that. And I live in such a way not to offend them so I can win them. If it's a Gentile, the same kind of way. Paul's saying, I'm minimizing my rights. I'm willing to go to jail. I'm willing to be a prisoner. I'm willing to set my life aside. I'm willing to be stoned. I'm willing to do whatever it takes despite all these rights I have because I'm living my life for the glory and the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Writer of Hebrews says a similar idea here. Hebrews says this, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Some of your translation would use the word weights. And the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, here's what he describes two things uh, in that passage. Number one, he says, let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And so he said, if you're running your life, the Christian life, for the spread of Jesus Christ, if you're wanting to run with endurance, the race set before us, which is the uh, make disciples of all the nations, he said, you've got to do two things. Number one, you've got to disentangle yourself from sinful patterns because it'll uh, cause you to trip up and forfeit your place in the race. But he says something else. He says, let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And then he uses the word and. And the reason the word and is there is because he's separating two separate things. And the other thing are the things that encumber us or the things that are weights. Now, let me tell you what weights are. Weights are things that are not sinful. That's why there's a contrast here. Weights are things that are not sinful, however, they've become so important in our lives that they've distracted us and gained all of our time, all of our energy, all of our resources, and therefore, we cannot leverage our life for the sake of gospel advancement. So here's a question everybody in the room should wrestle with, me included. What are the things in my life that are not sinful things but are things that have become so important that they've caused me to get distracted by the mission of Jesus Christ and the call of God on my life as a missionary. What are those things? We've all got them in our lives. What are those things that, that is so important that, that to, to lay it aside, whatever it is, to lay it aside would cause me great anxiety? And Paul says, hey, whatever that thing is, he says, for the cause of Christ, he said, you should be willing to minimize your rights to maximize your ministry. Now, here's the reality. If we're getting practical. For most of us, uh, it looks like rearranging our schedules and our finances to be better positioned to live on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And upon hearing that, we protest, Right? Like, I've worked hard to get to this place in right, uh, life. I've earned the right to spend my time and money how I want. And Paul's saying, hey, listen, that's the whole point he's making. It's not that these aren't rights that you have. He's saying, have those things become so important that you would not lay them aside to be better use of God to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Here's a phrase I want us all to embrace. To live as a missionary is to live sacrificially. To live as a missionary is to live sacrificially. Would you say that with me? To live as a missionary is to live sacrificially. One more time with Pentecostal power, all right? To live as a missionary is to live sacrificially. So here's the question. What does that look like in your life? What are the rights that aren't wrong, they're not sin. What are the things that God said, hey, these are your rights to do this and do that and spend your money and your time and your energies. That's your right to do that. But what would it look like to lay those aside for greater missionary service for the Lord Jesus Christ? And so that's what Paul's illustrating here in this passage. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I certainly could claim the right to get paid for my apostle ministry. Paul says, in my context, I'm going to lay this aside because I think in my context, it better positions me to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you what's not being said in these verses, and I've heard this taught uh, sometimes. What's not being taught in verses 19 through 23 uh, is this. It's the idea of, hey, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? Right? Paul's not talking about indulging in sin so that my life becomes more attractive by those who are enslaved to sin. Right? He's not describing that. Uh, Paul's not saying you have to uh, become a, a drinker if you want to win a drunk to Christ. He's not saying that you should hang out in strip clubs if you want to win sexually immoral people to Christ. Paul's not saying, hey, we, uh, you take on all kinds of sins so that your life becomes more relatable. He's not talking about indulging in sin. He's talking about laying aside things that are weights and things that have captured all of our energy, time, resources, passions, uh, margin. He says lay aside those things, even though it's your right to absorb and consume and enjoy all of those things. Now let's ask a fair question. Who in their right mind lives like that? Who would would take on that kind of self-denial, self-sacrificing type of lifestyle, foregoing all the things that you have the right to enjoy, all those things? Who in their right mind would live like that? Here's the answer. Jesus Jesus, not culture, uh, is our example. Pastor Chris shared Philippians 2 last week. It says this. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, verse 7, here it is. But he emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. Now that word emptied himself, some people have wrongly taught, that means he emptied himself of his divinity or his deity or the fact that he was God when he took on flesh. That's not what that means. What it means is he willingly laid aside all the rights, all the privileges of heaven for the sake of being a servant to all so that he might win the world to Christ or to himself through his own sacrificial death. And so that's what it looks like. And this is not some kind of self-abase, you know, what's wrong with you? You're driving a car. You could walk and give that money to missions. That's That's not any of the stuff he's talking about, right? He's just saying, hey, you have all these rights, all these freedoms, all these things. What does it look like to evaluate all of that and ask one simple question? Should I lay this aside so that I can live on mission for Jesus? That's what Paul's teaching and illustrating is a life not of self-indulgence, not of self-promotion, not of self-absorption, not of self-preservation, a life of self-denial. Spiritual maturity is not measured in Bible knowledge. Did you know that? I've said this for years. Some of the most biblically literate people I've ever met have also been some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life. Spiritual maturity is not found in religious activity. Spiritual maturity is often measured by self-denial. And if you ever want to gauge the spiritual maturity of a person, find out how they respond when they don't get their way and have to deny themselves and what they want. You'll find out exactly how spiritual that person is. Second thing I want you to see in this passage is this, is you have to be willing to exercise self-discipline for the sake of others. Paul teaches through that in verses 24 through verse 27. He says, hey, in verses 19 through 23, not only am I willing to lay aside my rights as a Roman citizen, as an apostle for the sake of being on mission with Jesus, also I'm going to live in such a self-disciplined way so that I can reach the world for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24 in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 24, he says, Do you not know? That those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, Paul's a master teacher. And so he's using the illustration here. And so he says, Don't you know that this is how runners compete? Knowing that they knew exactly all about athletics. Ever since the days of Alexander the Great, uh, athletics dominated Greek society. It's not much different than today. And so in their day, there would have been two games that were the most famous. One was the Olympic Games, which we certainly know what that is. But the other was called the Ismanian Games. And the Ismanian Games were held every third year in the city of Corinth, where this letter is being written to. So let me describe the discipline necessary just to participate in the Ismanian Games. In order to get to the uh, finals, at the Ismanian Games to participate in the finals there, you had to give proof of 10 months of training prior to that. And the last 30 days before the event, they all came into the community and they had to go to the gymnasium every day, certain exercises they had to uh, participate in. And only then, when all those conditions were met and could be proven, could they even sign up to participate in the finals of the Ismanian Games. And when they ran and won, the one who went, uh, won the race, guess what he won? All that tra- 10 months of training. 30 days of leaving your family, moving to this community, and and all this. And and for what? For all of this. Well, here's what history tells us. In Corinth, they uh, wore a wreath. It was made out of of pine sticks. Think about that. No White Castle for a year. So you can wear a pine stick wreath. What? Right. Now, for them, that wreath had meaning. Because whoever got the wreath placed on their head, they were immortalized in Corinthian culture. And so, so much more was attached to that wreath. There was so much more value than the sticks that comprised it. But, but here's, what, here's the point Paul's making. This idea of denying yourself for the sake of uh, getting a competitive advantage, that, that's, not, that's not a new thing. Now, you may not believe me when I tell you this. I used to be an athlete. And if you've ever, <laughs> former athlete, let me say that. And the reality is, you know, the part of getting a competitive advantage in athletics is self-discipline for the sake of getting a competitive advantage. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, I read this. I was reading an article on LeBron James, and it said this: that LeBron James spends nearly one million dollars a year taking care of his physical body to keep himself at a competitive advantage. Now, I played sports, but I'm, I spent a little less than a million dollars a year on this. All right. I'm just a genetic freak, so don't, don't be mad at me, all right? And so, and his argument is this, this is my greatest investment. So this idea that, a, that an athlete would self-discipline themselves for the sake of, that's not new. Matter of fact, look at verses 25 and 26. They weren't spending a million dollars a year, but they were doing the same thing. Verse 25, and everyone who competes for the prize, that pine wreath, is temperate or self-controlled in all things. And now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we, for an imperishable crown, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying get a hold of this. These athletes are going through a year long of training and self-denial and self-discipline and at the end of all of that self-discipline, at the end of all of that, they're gonna get a wreath of pine sticks placed on their head. He said, how much more should we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness because we will inherit an incorruptible crown that will cast at Jesus' feet in an act of worship. That's what he's describing. He's saying it's the soul. This is why you should live this way, for the sake of promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the reality. If you played any athletics, here's what you know. that Who you're competing against is the people around you, right? Why are they going through all this training? Why are they doing all those kinds of things? Because they had real opponents that if they weren't willing to self-discipline themselves, the opponents around them would, and so therefore, they weren't going to be competitive if they didn't. So here's my question. In trying to live our lives poured out and running the race for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make a name for Jesus and to make him famous in our culture and to be a missionary, here's the question. Who's our opponent? In athletics, it's the person with the other jersey on, Right? If you're a runner, it's the person in the lane next to you. And so if he's using this illustration, and he says, hey, there's so much more at stake for those of us who are following Jesus than some pine sticks on your head. And so he says, you've got to discipline yourself for this. And so who's the opponent? Well, let me offer up a couple suggestions that people have offered. Uh, number one, some people think that the opponent is the evil world around us. It's the liberal media... It's the political party that I don't belong to. Uh, it's something out there in culture. Some agenda, some, something out there in culture. And the reason I know that some people bought in that that's the real opponent is because there's lots of conservative evangelical Christians out fighting the culture wars to the point that they want to turn America into a Christian nation by force. And so lots of people believe the opponent we are facing is the culture around us, godless culture around us. If we can just get the right people in the right places of position, then we'll be a Christian nation again. Listen, you won't be a Christian nation again. That's moralism. The gospel, not power, is what turns people into Christians. And so some people think that. Other people think, no, no, no. It's not the the culture around us. The Bible says, they quote scripture, that the enemy is not flesh and blood. It's uh, powers and principalities. They would quote Ephesians chapter 6. And so it's not the godless culture around us that we're competing against. Uh, It's the devil and his demons. Now listen, spiritual warfare is true and often neglected in Bible-teaching, non-charismatic churches. However, I would argue that the greatest opponent we're facing in this race to make a difference for Jesus Christ is not the godless culture around us. It's not the devil around us. So what is it? Well, you don't have to wonder because verse 27 tells you exactly who the opponent is. Look at verse 27. But I discipline my body and bring it into into subjection. What's he saying? I practice self-discipline. Okay, the Bible says in another place, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It says, put on the works of righteousness, put off the works of the flesh. That's, that takes effort, right? What's he say? Keep reading, verse 27. Lest, when I have preached to others, tell them about Jesus, what's he say? I myself should become disqualified. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the opponent in this race to make Jesus famous is not the godless culture out there. It's not the devil and his demons in the air. It's my wicked heart in here. You know what the greatest enemy of advancing the gospel and spreading the name of Jesus? It's the person you look at in the mirror every single morning. That we should be more concerned about wicked and deceitful hearts than we are about anything out in culture or the devil and his demons out there. That's what he's saying here. He's saying I'm I'm disciplining myself so that when I spread the message of Jesus, uh, it's not discredited by my lifestyle. The opponent is us in waging the war for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, You cannot advance the gospel out into culture until the gospel transforms your own heart first. That's what he's saying. Paul is saying the key to staying in the race is to continue to win souls for Jesus is to put to death the sinful deeds and appetites of the flesh so that you and I don't discredit ourselves as we run the race for Jesus. The great Puritan John Owen said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And news flash, you can't run very fast or very far if you're dead. Did you know that? And so why do we lay aside our liberties? Why do we lay aside our rights? Because if you're not careful, all that self-indulgence and all that self-promotion and all that self-preservation and all, that, all those things, if you're not careful, guess what? You're going to disqualify yourself all under the banner of Christian freedom, and these are my rights. So, so you know what happens when you preach Christian freedom? You know what some people are afraid of, legalistic Christians? People are going to live like the devil, Right? You, I had a guy tell me one time, he said, you preach that grace stuff, people are gonna live like the devil. And so how do we, how do we wrestle with that? Well, if we just stop the message right here, you know what you do? I'm gonna be more disciplined. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try harder to fight sin. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure I'm gonna have a better accountability partner and better this and better spiritualist, better this and, and all those things so that I don't disqualify myself. I'm gonna be more self-disciplined so that I don't disqualify myself through sinful living. Listen, if that's your pattern, guess what? You're going to fail. You know why? Because all of your hope is in you, not in Jesus. All of your hope and confidence is in your willpower and not the work of Christ in you and through you in the exchange life. And you don't need Jesus for moralism. Did you know that? You just have a better set of rules and a better routine and a better schedule and more discipline and more accountability and more and all those things. And you don't need Jesus to be self disciplined. But the reality is the flesh will fail. And so, so what do we do? We don't want to disqualify ourselves. We know that according to verse 27, the greatest enemy is, is us and our own sinful appetites. We know that we can't discipline ourselves. Like, what is the answer? Listen, the answer is the same no matter what the question is when it comes to Christianity. The answer is Jesus. Now, what do you mean by that practically? Well, here's what happens. When you abide in Christ, the spirit-filled life will be produced as the overflow of your life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23 says this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let me highlight two of those. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love. You know what love is? It's self-sacrifice. You know what the first principle we said is? Self-denial. The key to self-denial is not gritting your teeth like, oh, I want to do that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to deny myself, right? That doesn't work. You know why? Because I've had the free chips set out for me at the Mexican restaurant. Amen? Like, I'm not going to do that. More chips, please, right? And so, when I'm going deeper with the Lord and in intimacy and abiding in Jesus Christ, the overflow is love. What is love? The decision to self sacrifice on behalf of someone else. What's another term for self sacrifice? Self denial. Self denial. Keep reading. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Here it is self control. You know what a synonym is for self-control? Self-discipline. What Paul says required so you don't disqualify yourself from the race of spreading Jesus' fame, self-discipline. What's another word for self-discipline? Self-control. How does self-control show up in life? Is it by willpower, grip my teeth? I'm gonna try harder, be more disciplined, get up earlier, you know, blah, blah, blah. All this. No, no, no. He said this is the overflow of a person who's spending time with Jesus in a deep, intimate relationship with him. Listen, the goal of the Christian life is not obedience, it's intimacy with Jesus. You see what I'm getting at? You will not live this type of life apart from Jesus transforming the affections of your heart. You cannot do this on your own. Left to yourself, you'll live a life of self promotion and self absorption and self indulgence and self preservation, not a life of self denial. The only hope you have of living this way that Paul said is Jesus Christ at work in you. Here's the good news, though He's enough. That's the good news. The key to living this way is abiding in Jesus Christ. The key to representing Jesus faithfully and consistently is to love Jesus deeply. And so the reality is this. Apart from him, all that we taught today, you've got no hope. You've got no hope. But the good news is, is the Bible teaches That Jesus Christ is our living hope. And so if you want to represent him faithfully and consistently, you have to love him deeply. That is the call of God on everyone's life. And if you've never met this living hope called Jesus, I'd love to introduce you to him this morning. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you two questions. Number one. What are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you trusting in your good deeds? Are you trusting in your own moralism? Are you trusting in the fact that you're a good person? Listen, if that's you this morning, then all of your confidence is in you and none of it's in Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you've never received him for the forgiveness of your sins and all of your hope of heaven is rested and rooted in you, then you've come to the right place this morning because the gospel says this, that God loves you and sent his son to die for you and God wants to save you from your sins this morning through a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's nothing in the Bible that presents a picture of of standing before God on some eternal scales, and your good outweighs your bad. That's self-righteousness. The gospel is God saves those who cannot save themselves. The gospel is Christ died for us in that while we were yet sinners. And so if you would come this morning and denounce your self-righteousness and say, God, I, I can't save myself. Compared to the life of Jesus Christ, my good works don't even measure up. And so this morning, I confess that. I agree with you, God, that I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And Lord, this morning, I'm grieved for my sin and self-righteousness, and I have a desire to turn from it, to no longer trust in it, and I receive Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins. Would you do that this morning right in your seat, right where you're at? Would you pray and receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins if you've never done that? For those of you who have done that, you you know Christ, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let me ask you one question this morning. Is there anything in your life that God is calling you to lay aside so that you can be Better positioned to be a missionary for Jesus Christ. For some of you, it may be sins that you've been entangled in and you've justified, you've rationalized them away. God's calling you to repentance. For others, it's not sin, but it's just it's weights. It's things that have gotten too much attention in your life. It's often good things that we've made into God things. And they're not wrong to enjoy, but you just feel the Holy Spirit nudging you this morning saying, Hey, would you be willing to lay that aside so you have a little more margin in your schedule and your finances so that I can use you in the way that I want to use you? What would that look like in your life? To live sacrificially for the cause of Christ. And I can't answer that this morning. Father, I pray this morning for all of us, me included. That God, we while we're grateful to be citizens of this great country and all the rights that we have, God, while we're grateful that under the covenant of grace we have all this Christian liberty, God, I pray that we would posture ourselves, that we would willingly and gladly and sacrificially lay aside all those liberties and all those rights if those things are getting in the way, of representing Jesus to the world. And so God, give us wisdom this week as opportunities that we can do that very thing. God, give us opportunities where we can lower our platform with the sole motivation of exalting Jesus Christ. God, in a self-promoting, self-indulgent, self-absorbed, selfie culture, God, help us to live lives of self-denial through the power of Christ in us. And whenever we do, whenever that happens, may we give you all the glory for your work in us. God, our only hope for this kind of life is Jesus, but we declare today, he's enough. He is enough. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.